Father in heaven, we thank you for your love, for your goodness, for your willingness and desire to pour your spirit out on us. I pray, Lord, that we would be willing to receive today. In Jesus' name, amen. I'll start today in John chapter 4 with a story that you know well. John chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize but his disciples. I just want to pause there for a second. This isn't the point we're talking about, but this is very interesting, and it's an insight, I think, into human nature. That there would be a little inclusion there that would say Jesus didn't technically baptize anyone. Any ideas in your mind why Jesus might not have actually baptized anyone? I'll tell you what I think it is. So, so human nature being what it is, let's say Jesus baptized me and you just got baptized by Peter. How smug am I going to be? How holier than thou am I going to be? Right? But really, in a sense, this actually does feed into the larger point here. Because uh, what we're going to talk about today is living water, and, and, and it's related to the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. The reality of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit is it's for everybody. In the last days, I will pour my Spirit on all flesh. And not just the ones who got baptized by the special person. Now, it can be special relationally, but if we're, if we're playing some game of spiritual hierarchy here, then we're falling into a very negative pattern, and that, that, that's the pattern that became apostolic succession, and part of the thing that ended up creating so much baggage that we've placed on the notion of ordination and all of these different things. It's just not healthy for us. And we need to be more geared into the idea of, of the, the Spirit is poured by God on all flesh. So, so Jesus was careful not to do that so that down the road people didn't say, well, I was baptized by Jesus, therefore whatever I say matters more. Anyway, let's go on. He left Judea and departed again to Galilee, but he needed to go through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. So our understanding of their timekeeping, the sixth hour would be roughly noon. So it was about midday. Why is Jesus in Samaria? Well, if you, if you know the map at all, you have Judea in the south and Galilee in the north, but between them is Samaria. Often the Jews didn't want to go through Samaria. They would actually cross the Jordan River and go north on the other side of the river just to avoid that region. But in that region was the Samaritans. Interesting group, the Samaritans. What do we do with the Samaritans? I mean, on the one hand, we know there's Jews and Gentiles, right? But then there's this third group, Samaritans. They're not really Gentiles, but they certainly aren't Jews. Who were these people? And, and why was there all this hostility? Well, we go on, verse 7. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. 
Now, let me give you context on this. This, this really was unexpected. Because first of all, uh, a Jewish man speaking with a Samaritan woman was just not right. And secondly, the whole notion of her giving him a drink, pouring it into a cup that a Samaritan had used, was just, I mean, that was, you were just begging for ritual uncleanness to do something like that. So she's amazed when Jesus speaks to her that way. And you notice in the interaction, she assumes hostility. This happens to us, doesn't it? Sometimes when we interact in, in different groups and in different ways, someone we don't know will assume hostility, or we might assume hostility from someone who's not from our group, the, the Jews group. Well, there's a good reason for this. Now, I'm not saying an appropriate reason, but I am saying there is a reason why this hostility was there. But to really understand it, you have to go all the way back to the book of 2 Kings. 2 Kings chapter 17 tells the story of, of, how, of the ending of the northern kingdom of Israel. You know that, that after the time of Solomon, the kingdom was split in half, and there was Judah in the south, and there was Israel in the north. And the kingdom of Israel was even more during that phase, more unfaithful than Judah. Ultimately, Judah was unfaithful too. But the northern kingdom was so unfaithful that ultimately they completely sacrificed the protection of God. And the Assyrian Empire came in and destroyed the northern kingdom. Now, now what the empires did in those days was rather than taking over a place and then having to station a bunch of soldiers in there and the people are always trying to revolt and things like this, the way they kept the, the areas they subdued from revolting was they took the people from that land and spread them out in other places in the empire. So what they did, they came in and they deported the people of Israel and spread them out throughout the empire. Why did they do this? Well, once they spread them out in other places, they no longer had that unity based on where they were. And because in that day there was a really strong sense of where you were, there was even a mentality that uh, if you left the place you were and went to another place, you had to worship the God of that other place. Because in the mind of the people, the gods were regional. So the people of Israel, when the Assyrians came in, were taken away and spread out. But the land was not left empty. And this is where the whole problem with the Samaritans begins. So 2 Kings chapter 17, verse 24. Then the king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Cuthah, Avah, Hamath, and from Sepharvaim, and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the children of Israel. And they took possession of, the Samarian, of Samaria and dwelt in its cities. So the king of Assyria didn't just empty the, the descendants of Israel out of the land. He gathered up random people from other places and moved them into that region. So you had all these different races of people. Now, it's fascinating how the Bible records what happens next. Verse 25, And it was so at the beginning of their dwelling there that they did not fear the Lord. Now you see that's in the capitals. That means God's name, Yahweh. They did not fear Yahweh. Therefore Yahweh sent lions among them, which killed some of them. 
So they spoke to the king of Assyria, saying, The nations whom you have removed and placed in the cities of Samaria do not know the rituals of the God of the land. Therefore he has sent lions among them, and indeed they are killing them because they do not know the rituals of the God of the land. It's very strange to our ears, isn't it? But it was in the minds of those people who came into this land that there are gods of different places, and now we're living in the land of Yahweh. And if somebody doesn't tell us what Yahweh expects, we'll never survive in his land. Verse 27, Then the king of Assyria commanded, saying, Send there one of the priests whom you brought from there. Let him go and dwell there, and let him teach them the rituals of the God of the land. Then one of the priests whom they had carried away from Samaria came and dwelt in Bethel and taught them how they should fear the Lord, how they should fear Yahweh. However, every nation continued to make gods of its own and put them in the shrines on the high places which the Samaritans had made, every nation in the cities where they dwelt. So, that's where you hear the term Samaritan used. The term Samaritan came to describe the descendants of these people who had come from all these different places. They came, they got taught about Yahweh, the God of heaven, but they also hung on to some of their traditional religions. So the word Samaritan became synonymous with people who are not our people living in our land who claim to worship the Lord but really don't. This is why later when the Samaritans tried to come to Jerusalem to worship Yahweh in the temple, the Jews said, no, you have no part with us. And this is why the Samaritans would end up building their own temple to Yahweh on the mountain. And this would play into the interaction that Jesus would have with the woman. As you go later on in the chapter, it's not really the part we're keying on, but later on in 1 John chapter 4, we find these words in verse 19. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. So this is the separation, right? You see it? So they had to build their place to worship Yahweh on the mountain because the Jews wouldn't let them come to Jerusalem and worship. So she's going to ask the question. Settle this for us. Verse 21, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. Now this is very interesting. Catch this verse 22. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. So, so Jesus is actually saying, yeah, you don't have it quite right. But then, neither do the Jews at this point. He says, but the hour is coming and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. So he's interacting with the woman there and, and, and she's trying to get him to, to settle this dispute, but he, he goes beyond it. He says, you know what? Your temple on the hill, the Jews' temple in Jerusalem, it's all about to come to an end because God is about to do something new and it's going to change everything. Let's go back. Let's go back to this encounter Jesus has. 
John chapter 4, verse 10. This is back. So she has just said to him, how is it you asked me for a drink? Verse 10, Jesus answered and said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. That's our title today. That's our focus. Living water. Verse 11, the woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? She's still thinking very much in the present reality. Are you greater than our father Jacob? That's an ironic little question, right? Because she's asking it kind of disdainfully. Oh, big man with living water. Are you greater than Jacob? Well, yeah, actually. She's not ready to hear that yet, though. Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as well as his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. So Jesus just goes, whoa, and he just takes it way out here. He's saying, you're talking about water here, but what I'm talking about will not just satisfy you, but when you receive it, it will become a fountain in you that pours out of you. Well, that story goes on and she says, sir, give me that water so I don't have to come back. And, and he says the thing about go get your husband. And you, you have that whole encounter that leads up to the moment where Jesus identifies himself to her as the Messiah. It's an amazing encounter. But I want to key on this idea of living water. What is this living water? Well, John is not going to leave us in confusion here because Jesus is going to come back to this idea. And it's going to happen. It's recorded in John chapter 7. And it's going to happen in the context of the Feast of Tabernacles. So John chapter 7, Jesus is at the Feast of Tabernacles. Verse 37, we find these words. On the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So the claim of Jesus here is he's not just going to give living water, but to everyone who receives it, they too will become a fountain. So what is this living water? Verse 39 this is John's commentary on what Jesus said. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. What was the glorification of Jesus? Well, it was when he died on the cross, was in the tomb, and was raised again. And then he tells them, go wait in Jerusalem for that which is promised. The day of Pentecost, the Spirit is poured out, and suddenly they begin to realize everything is different now, isn't it? And suddenly that conversation with the Samaritan woman starts to make sense to worship in spirit and in truth. 
No longer is it about the mountain in Jerusalem. Now it is about everyone because the prophet Joel said, in the last days, the Lord will pour out His Spirit on all flesh. And no longer will Samaritan or Jew matter because the Spirit is poured on all who come to Jesus. And not only that, Gentile. That's why He says, you will be My witnesses in Jerusalem. Start with the most righteous, right? And Judea, spread it out a little bit. And Samaria, if you read the book of Acts, you know the next thing that happens. They go to the Samaritans and the Samaritans believe. And then the Spirit's poured out on them. And the ends of the earth. Story of Cornelius where the Spirit falls. So what he's saying is, a day is coming when it's all going to change. Because now the Spirit will be available to all. And all who come to Jesus for the living water will receive the Holy Spirit. So I was walking in the children's wing earlier. We, we know this concept, or at least we've heard these words. I was walking in, the, in the, the children's area earlier, which it's children's area over there only for a little bit longer. Then it'll be children's area over there. That'll be a great day. But I was down the hall, and as I was walking along, I heard them singing a song. And the song goes like this. I've got a river of life flowing out of me. You know that one? Sing it with me. Makes the lame to walk and the blind to see. Opens prison doors, set the captives free. I've got a river of life flowing out of me. Spring up, oh well. There you go. Yeah, all right. We won't go any further than that. But get all the splish splash we can. That's what that song's about. That's what we're talking about. This is where it comes from. I've got a river of life flowing out of me. It's what happens when we come to Jesus and He gives us His Spirit and it transforms us. So, so what, is it, what is it like? What does it take for this? Well, I go back to, to the book of Isaiah, chapter 55. This is an amazing chapter. Isaiah 55, verse 1 says, Oh, everyone who thirsts. Who's invited? Anyone that thirsts. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Yes, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. What does it cost? Nothing. The only thing it costs is you have to thirst. In order to come to the waters and receive, you have to be thirsty. You can come to the water, but if you're not thirsty, then you're not going to get any of the living water in you. It's the old, you can lead a horse to water, right? You can lead a person to the foot of the cross, but if they're not thirsty in their heart for what it means, then there'll be nothing happen. There's also another thing. There's the thing where you taste it, but you still want to hang on to the world. Jeremiah talks about this. Jeremiah chapter 2. Jeremiah chapter 2. 
I'm going to start in verse 9. So this is Jeremiah. He's in Jerusalem. He's writing about the impending destruction of Judah at the hands of the Babylonians. Therefore, I will yet bring charges against you, says the Lord, and against your children's children I will bring charges. For pass me on the coast of Cyprus and see. Send to Kedar and consider diligently and see if there has been such a thing. Has a nation changed its gods, which are not gods? But my people have changed their glory for what does not profit. So what God is saying here is, is I, I brought you out of Egypt. I gave you my laws. I was your God. I delivered you into the land. I gave you the land. Yet you didn't stay with me. You sought other gods. You know, I think this is part of the amazing reality of, of Abraham. Part of the amazing reality of David. They lived in these pantheistic times yet Abraham chose one God he served Yahweh the God of heaven that was it nobody else he listened to his voice he went where he told him to go David he was committed to Yahweh no one else no other gods but so many of the others they kind of hedged their bets didn't they they kind of hung on to other stuff yeah Yahweh but but Baal too yeah, Yahweh, but Asherah. Yeah, Yahweh, but Moloch. Yeah, Yahweh, but. And eventually those other gods completely displaced the one true God. Aren't you glad we never do that? Yeah, it's risky, isn't it? We do it too, don't we? But what is it for us? So we don't live in a pantheistic day. We're not... We're not generally in danger of worshiping other gods, but we are in danger of allowing other philosophies to completely close off our view of God. Verse 12. Be astonished, O heaven, at this, and be horribly afraid. Be very desolate, says the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn themselves cisterns. Broken cisterns that can hold no water. Do you know what a cistern is? A cistern is an artificially created reservoir. Sometimes they were underground. Sometimes they were above ground. But they were, they were in, in arid climates where there was a rainy season and a dry season. And what you would do during the rainy season was you would direct all the water that fell into the cistern. Or you might just go to a stream and, and dip it out and dump it into the cistern. And, and the cistern would fill up when there was plenty of water. And then for the dry season, then you would go and you would dip out of the cistern and so you would have water during the dry time. Okay, that's all good except for one thing. How much are you going to want water out of that thing after about a month of sitting there? That's pretty brutal. We're pretty spoiled, aren't we? We just go grab another water bottle and it's reasonably fresh. But you think about what happens to it when it sits there and how you would long for a cool drink of living water. This is so real that God uses this as a symbol to represent what happens to us in our lives when we cease going to Him as the source and instead we try to make another way for ourselves. And it just becomes stagnant water. One example of how we do this is kind of the, kind of the rainy season, arid season way of living life. And that's like, I'm really into God on Sabbath. And so I collect all the water on Sabbath and I put it into this little well. But I don't go anywhere near God 
Sunday through Friday. I just go back and, and dip a little bit out. That's one of the ways we do it. Another way we do it is just to try to create these alternate realities that we can live in. We're, we're trying to hang on to things. But the living water is the Holy Spirit in you. And when the Holy Spirit is in you, the Holy Spirit sustains you, energizes you, empowers you, enriches you. But to build our own cistern, that's everything we do, everywhere we run, anything that isn't centered in God that's a part of our lives. We, we want a connection here, but then we still want these other connections over here. I'm going to sustain myself with this stuff even though I'm going to act like a worshiper of God. These are the cisterns that, that, we, that we hew for ourselves. What comes out of them is not fresh. And we are far from having a river of life flowing out of us. I want to take you back to Isaiah 55 because I want to I want to help us get to something practical here about how do I receive that living water so that I become this fountain of life. So we go back to the first words of this chapter. Everyone who thirsts, come to the water. So the first key is to recognize in yourself the thirst for the living water. So think about it. You're here today. How are you on the inside? Are you thirsty for the living water of life in your life? Now, here's the thing. It's okay to be thirsty every day. In fact, I hope you're thirsty every day. Because that's what brings you back to that source. Now, I want to go down. I want to look at verses 6 and 7. Because I think verses 6 and 7 explain to us how we go to the source. Verse 6 says, Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. So what this suggests to me is there are points in our life where it is much easier for us to be at the source receiving than other points in our life. And I want to suggest to you that happens to you every day. And there is a time each day that is the time best suited for you to receive of the living water and other times in the day when you're going to need to rely on the living water that you received before. So the best time to try to get the living water is not after you've been drugged behind the cart and run over by the bus. That's a bad time. The best time is before you get drugged behind the cart and run over by the bus. Which means at the beginning of your day. Don't start your day thirsty. Go to the living water First thing, what does that mean? Well, it means a lot of things, but one of the things it means is to take this word, this living word, and receive it on a daily basis. Read this Bible. Let God speak to you through its words. The living water comes out of here. Not only out of here, but yes, definitely out of here. And do it early in your day because the Lord will give you things you will need throughout your day. And do it every day. It's hard. I have the days I struggle. But do it every day. Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him when He is near. 
come to him in prayer. This seven days of prayer coming up, this is a great time for you to kickstart this kind of thing. It takes a certain discipline. It takes a certain intentionality. Life got real for me again this week. Ariel went back to school. That means no more getting up at 7. 5.30 again. Because that's the only way I can seek the Lord while He is near and still have time to do everything else I need to do to get her where she needs to be on time. It takes a discipline. But it's worth it. Seek the Lord while He is near. Call on Him while He may be found. Now here's the second piece. So the first is seek the Lord. Come to drink. But here's the second one. Let the wicked forsake his ways and the unrighteous man his thoughts. These are the cisterns that we hew out. Our wicked ways and our unrighteous thoughts. See, our tendency is, yeah, I'm going to come get a drink. I'm going to read your word, but I'm not going to let it impact the other part of my life because I want to keep going that way. But key to becoming a fountain of living water is to make sure that the polluting elements are not still there. So forsaking those things that are not in God's order for us, not in His purpose, and also to cleanse our minds. Now, these are not overnight experiences. These are not brute force experiences. These things only happen by the infilling of the Spirit. But we have to choose them. We have to try to go that way. We have to confront those thoughts when they come. We have to say, no, I don't want to go down that road right now. And it's miserable, especially you're in the habit of certain ways of thinking. You have to confront it, and again, and again, and again, and again. But the good news I can promise you is if you will be faithful to do that, the length of time between when you have to confront it will get longer and longer. They say this is like the, the addiction process, that, that someone uh, who has been a smoker in their life never actually gets over it. The urges still come. It's just they come once a year. When you first quit, they come every five minutes. But the longer you stay faithful, the easier it gets to hang on. So hang on to that faithfulness. Forsake uh, the wicked ways and the unrighteous thoughts. And then what? Let him return to the Lord and maybe God will be somewhat patient. Is that what the Bible says? No, no, no. Let him return to the Lord and he will have mercy on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. God is eager to receive you back and pardon. He is eager to pour out His Spirit on all flesh. He doesn't just want you to drag along. He wants you to become a fountain of living water. Does that sound good? Does that sound like a better life? You know, people have lived this way even in the worst of conditions. People who have been in just incredibly difficult situations where they've been oppressed on every side, yet, yet they maintain this life-giving spirit. It really can be any one of us. Because all of us who come to Jesus, He offers us the living water. He offers us the Holy Spirit. We have to thirst for it. We've got to seek it. 
We've got to be ready to reject the things contrary to it. But God is there to help us and to make it happen. So my prayer for you today is that you would receive the Holy Spirit. That you would drink the living water. And that you would become a fountain of the goodness of God flowing up out of your heart. You know, I wish I could explain it succinctly. But do you understand what I'm saying in your spirit? Can you, can you sense what it would be like if the Spirit of God was in you? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we're speaking of things that go beyond our ability to measure and even perceive. But these things are real. Jesus said, all who believe in me and receive the living water will become fountains, rivers of living water. Lord, I think, I think that would be really good and I think we would be a real blessing in this world right now if what was coming out of us was living water at a time where so many places it's the opposite of that that's coming out. But we're only going to be able to do that, Lord, by your grace. So look on us now. We come to you as we are. We confess our weakness. We confess what we cannot change. And we ask for your spirit. Help us to forsake those ways and those thoughts that are destroying our lives. Help us to become those fountains. Fill our cup, Lord. We lift it up. We have a thirsting in our soul that only you can satisfy. In Jesus' name, amen.